Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Let's, let's love them. Welcome, Morley. Hey guys, thank you guys so much for coming out. This is really, really intimidating because I did not expect such a cool crowd. Um, so I'm going to be reading from my book, uh, Oxford Dictionary of Physics. Uh, it's just going to be about four and a half hours long, um, but you're going to learn a lot. Just kidding. I actually did look for a good book for that joke for a while. Uh, at first I was like, I, was like well, I don't want to offend anybody that's like actually written a book, but what, what's like the last thing somebody would want to hear uh, read? So um, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with what I do, uh, really, so I kind of made a little visual introduction video that I can show first uh, right off the bat, so you guys can get a sort of a taste if you're not familiar. Uh, so it's about four minutes long or so. Uh, I hope you like it.
The Oxford Dictionary of Fitness. Just kidding. Thought I could get a little more mileage out of that one. Um, okay, so this is the first time I've ever read anything. Um, a book of mine, or, or rather anything in public before, so please forgive any uh, fumbles or uh, slip-ups. If I say something that sounds like it's grammatically incorrect, it's probably just because I read it wrong. Uh, and if it doesn't sound like Pulitzer Prize winning fiction, it's just because I'm nervous. It's, that's what it is, I promise you. <laughs> just kidding. Okay, so I'm going to read a couple of little pieces, and then we're going to have a quick discussion with, uh, with my very good friend. He's, he's my very good friend, Fred. <laughs> so this is the introduction to the book. Uh, if you're reading this, there's still time. This book is not about me, at least not completely. Contrary to what you may think from viewing hundreds of posters with my name and image on them, my work isn't just an exercise in vanity. More accurately, it's about the people who encounter it. It's about the relationship that they have to the messages they've stumbled upon. Basic yet intimate messages aimed at a city full of people and the dreams they've deferred, the loves they've lost, and the jobs they hate. This book is not really about the fashionably rebellious nature of street art. While the work of a traditional artist may be perfectly at home in a gallery, my work is significantly less effective without the context of the landscape it exists within and the populace of strangers who interact with it. My intention was never to come across as a hip outlaw or an urban folk hero. I just wanted to contribute a few positive words to the staticky white noise that vies for our attention on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Frustration, inadequacy, disappointment, condemnation, and impotent rage are the products of the sound that rings in our ears, echoes in our hearts, and screams in our heads. Their sources can be traced back to any number of personal experiences and need only a moment of silence to convince us of the soul-crushing solitude and failure that's surely predestined for us. Don't worry, I hear it too. I wanted the messages in my posters to provide a slight glimmer of hope, motivation, humor, and relief for anyone they apply to. One of my methods of achieving this was through confessing my own fears, flaws, and idiosyncrasies to anyone who might be able to relate. For that reason alone, it seemed imperative to sign my work. To shield myself from judgment behind protective anonymity seemed counter to the purpose of putting my posters out there in the first place. I believe that speaking with any kind of intimacy into people's lives is a privilege earned only through honesty and vulnerability. I wanted my words to be the words of a friend, comrade, and kindred spirit. I was not trying to manufacture a viral campaign to build fame and fortune as an artist. I was just trying to make a few people smile. That's why this book isn't really about me. It's about you. Its quality is dependent almost completely on how much the messages mean to you. Maybe you're a wealthy, attractive, confident person who's never failed or known rejection. If so, congratulations. Also, I'm sorry that my book is kind of boring and doesn't even have any workout tips. <laughs> Admittedly, my talents are limited. I've never claimed to be the best at any aspect of what I do. There are wittier wordsmiths and better illustrators in the world, too many to count, actually. This isn't to feign humility, it's to explain that no, I don't think I'm Banksy. I don't think I'm anyone but myself, imperfections and all. I started doing what I do to communicate with the world around me, and I never considered whether I was qualified. Now here I am, with enough pieces to fill a book and only one apology for not doing a better job. I hope you find it satisfactory. Thank you for giving my work a chance. Thank you to anyone who's ever passed something I did on the street and glanced at it long enough to ingest the words and their meaning. Some are meant to be profound, some just silly, but all of them were meant as a gift. I hope at least a few of them fit you, 
because I lost the receipt. Enjoy. So, uh, let's go with this, uh, this next story. I have to uh, include some slides because you kind of need to see what I'm referencing. So I apologize if it's difficult to see. Um, I'll explain to you if there's anything that's missing that you can't quite get, even if it's awkward for me because you'll find out why. <clears throat> so this is a story uh, about um, one of the few times that I've almost been caught doing what I do. Uh, and that, that'll make sense in a moment. Uh, a lot of people ask me if I've ever been caught, and I haven't been arrested yet, but I have been caught a couple times, and one of them was this time, and it sort of ended in an interesting way, so I figured I would include the story into the book. This little piece is called Required Reading. So here I am, hopping the fence to what appears to be a condemned house that has fallen pretty deeply into ruin. The fence, part rusty metal, part wooden plank, is cheap and jagged, and it cuts my hand as I scale it. Nevertheless, once I'm in, I'm excited, because now I get to look around and pick my spot. I wipe the blood from my hand on my pants and survey the possibilities. I decide to go for the broad side of the house. The nice thing about spots like this is that the fence blocks most people from casually looking over and spotting me work so I can take my time, which I do, liberally. After it's up, I take a bunch of pictures, even using a big ladder I find to get the best angle. I also notice a big pile of damp, rained-on books, all sharing a common theme. See if you can spot it. And uh, you'll see the books in a moment. Uh, I still can't decide if my favorite title is Mother's Hungry Boy or Hot Mouthed Mother. <laughs> Some of the other ones are like Mother's Special Needs and, and Mom Makes Three. <laughs> After I finish taking pictures, I grab my bucket and brush and uh, round the corner of the house to the front, deliberating if I should put up another poster. Suddenly, I hear a sound. It's the sound of keys jangling as they open a padlock to the fence. With only 10 seconds to think, I mull over my options. If the guy's already seen me, running and hiding would only lead to the following embarrassing scenario. Him, sir, please come out from under that tarp and come with me. <laughs> me, there's no one hiding under this tarp. I could just bolt and try to make it over the other wall of the fence, but with my hand already wounded, I'm not sure I could make it over fast enough, and that might lead to further bloodshed for me. The third option seems the craziest, but I figure I might as well give it a shot. I pick up my bucket and brush and stride confidently over to where the man is entering. As he unlocks the padlock and pulls the chain free, he looks up, and I walk out the gate he's opening, saying, thanks, I was just leaving. <laughs> Confused, he follows me to the street, sputtering monosyllabic ums, uhs, uh huh, in quick succession, all of which I ignore. I get in my car and gingerly wave as I drive away. <laughs> Dumbfounded, he obliges a wave back. It seemed as though he hadn't seen my poster or me putting it up, and luckily the side of the gate he opened was not the side I'd been working on, so the fiction that I invented in those ten seconds assumed that he might mistake me for a city employee who stopped by for some official reason, and thus, if I just acted authoritative, he might be confused long enough to let me just get out of there. Then again, maybe he was just glad I didn't mention all the books. <laughs> so that's that story.
this next story is for a friend of mine. Uh, it's for a friend of mine who's actually here tonight. What's up, dude? <laughs> uh, but it's also for all of you guys that, uh, that live in Los Angeles and dream as well. This one's called Latitude. This poster was born in part after a discussion I had with my friend Tim. A fellow transplant from Iowa, he's been in Los Angeles for the last eight, now nine, years working as an actor. Every few months he confesses to flirting with the idea of leaving, wondering if living in Los Angeles is really what he wants or if more exciting prospects could be found somewhere else. Selfishly, I'd like to rattle off a dozen reasons he should stay, but I always do my best to be supportive. I encourage him to consider the pros and cons as thoughtfully as possible, but let him know that I'd support whatever decision he arrived at, and I am sincere. Luckily for me, he hasn't left yet. There are times when all of us question the direction our lives are headed and wonder if it's not too late to veer off. The other night, lying in bed, I fantasized about running an ice cream truck. How gratifying would it be to spend your days making children smile, selling Flintstones push-ups and rocket pops? Oh, for a job where the validity of the product isn't constantly being called into question. You could spend your entire life creating a painting only to be told that it's worthless or that it doesn't quite fit the demo that we're aiming for this year. A guy selling ice cream isn't told to do something else with his life just because a few people don't like the flavors he's selling. I can't blame Tim for wanting to leave, and I refuse to accept that someone shifting his or her priorities is the same thing as being a quitter. But the most important thing to remember is that wherever we are, there is value in why and how we got there. This is not to say that there doesn't come a time to move on, but in the moments when you're convinced that the years you've spent somewhere have proven fruitless, they haven't. The wisdom that comes from embracing the person your environment has made you is more valuable than booking any national commercial. The future might not keep you here, Tim, but for right now, you're exactly where you need to be. One more story, and then we're going to get to the yakety yak. Uh, let's go with this one. Um, <clears throat> so I think I think some people here are going to relate to this one. Uh, it might just be me, but um, but I think uh, I think a few of you guys will know what I'm going for. This one's called "Kicking the Habit." When I was in sixth grade, the teachers at my school set aside time from our normal routine for the D.A.R.E. program, a police officer-led series of lessons attempting to teach children about the dangers of drugs and how to resist drug-related peer pressure. I don't remember much about the lessons today other than the impressive variety of drugs they touched on. They covered all the obvious ones like cocaine, heroin, huffing, steroids, but for some reason felt the need to include quite a few substances that now seem a little outdated and obscure. Were kids my age really doing quaaludes? <laughs> How many cases are there of people strung out on peyote these days? Was I just lucky to never have friends that pressured me to try powderized Novocaine? <laughs> Regardless of how complete D.A.R.E. was determined to be, in hindsight, there was one drug that the officers missed, and sadly, it was the one drug I fought an addiction to for most of my life, the drug of approval. For most people, all it takes is a little taste, and we're hooked. 
a compliment, a gold star, a smattering of applause at a recital, a high five after scoring a point in the Little League game. It all seems harmless, but before you know it, you crave even the smallest accolade and will do pretty much anything to get another hit. Over time, though, you build up a tolerance, and a few kind words no longer do the trick, so you begin seeking out new methods of achievement. In the process, you will most likely acquire a few critics or haters. They will range from those who simply aren't fans to those who actively work to tear you down. These people are likely addicts in their own right and are just looking to cop your attention stash. You try your best to ignore them, but because of your addiction, even a minor critique can spark a full-blown identity crisis. My name is Morley, and I'm an approval-holic. It's funny when you consider that no one in the history of planet Earth has been universally beloved by everyone. Those who come close were pretty much all murdered. <laughs> Yet, we somehow convince ourselves that we could be the exception. Think of the person you admire most, and I guarantee that there is someone who really hates them. Someone who thinks that they're overrated, full of themselves, fake, or just annoying for some vague and unspecific reason, and this someone feels the undeniable desire to take them down a few pegs. To remind your hero of their own frail, flawed humanity. If they can't manage that, to make sure as many people are aware of said flaws as possible. And if they can't manage that, well then they can always just write the letters F-A-G on their locker. <laughs> I can accept the basic principle that not everyone will like me or my stuff. So why is it that whenever someone trashes something I've done or makes a snarky comment online, I get the wind knocked out of me? I shouldn't be surprised, and more importantly, I shouldn't let it bother me as much as it does, but I can't help it. The way I see it, the only way to rid myself of the pain is to kick the need for praise, overcoming the sensitivity to being disliked along with it. If you aren't constantly trying to get people to like you, it doesn't bother you as much if they don't. Is it possible to create art for others and not innately seek the approval of it? I'm not sure, probably not completely. But we can wean ourselves away from the addiction little by little. I try to limit the amount of time I spend online. I avoid comment sections of blogs or articles about me. I consciously try to focus my thoughts away from myself, the perception people have of me and how many fans I have or don't have. Sure, I suffer the occasional relapse and visit some blog, read some smug comment, and foolishly engage the person only to rediscover, as always, that I can do almost nothing to change someone's opinion. Civilized discourse requires both parties to treat one another like human beings with actual feelings, not verbal punching bags to demonstrate superiority over with juvenile all-caps name-calling. <laughs> In the end, as with all addictions, we can only take these things one day at a time and continually seek the serenity to accept things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. So uh, I think we were going to get a, like an intro for Fred that involved uh, firecrackers and uh, jetpacks. Is it going on now? Yeah, I think so. Are we ready with it? Is that? It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome, guys. <laughs> And now, oh, dang it. No. I guess not. Yeah. I don't know. We should have rehearsed that. All, All right. right. Everybody, Fred Savage. Hi, guys. Um, wait, I have to put my notes up here. These are the yeah, yeah. <laughs> ramblings of a madman, so I have to put these up here. Let me switch places with you. Okay. All right. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Um, I... Uh, I'm a big fan of, of, of Morley's work and, and have been for a long time. And um, to paraphrase uh, one of his pieces, one of my favorite pieces of his, uh, so here we are in the last place we ever expected, and isn't it magnificent? And 
I think that applies for me being uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, and certainly in this room. Uh, it's, it, I, it's the last place in the world I ever imagined being. I was, a few years ago, I was driving my kids to school, and we were driving down Beverly, and at the corner of Beverly and, uh, and Laurel Avenue, um, there was uh, his um, uh, Give Up, Get Up piece. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it says, uh, Give Up. And there's his Morley's uh, silhouette holding up um, E.T. under the I.V.E. It sounds much better when you see it. The explaining it is, <laughs> sounds really complicated. But I was, so, I was driving with my kids in the car, and I, I think like Party in the USA was playing, and I turned it down, and I was like, guys, like that is, do you see that? They had no idea what I was talking about. I'm like, that is exactly what I want you guys to feel like. You know, I want you, when, if, if, if something gets you down, you, you stand up. Like this, the, and the moment you think you're going to quit, you know, you, you just keep going on. And, and, and that's what I want to teach you guys. And, and that's what I really want you to learn is, is even at your darkest moment, like you can keep going on. And that's what that's telling you. And they're like, it's just silence, you know? And, and, uh, and I'm like, oh, I'm an insane person. And my son chimes in, who's like smarter than I'll ever be. He's like, so wait, it's like when Woody was looking for Buzz. <laughs> And he couldn't get into Pizza Planet. And he kept trying to get into Pizza Planet. He does and he finds Buzz. I'm like, yes, that is exactly it. That is exactly it. And I'm like a dad. I'm super emotional. I like start tearing up. And so I get to work and I email, like I just go to the site and I email Morley. I'm like, oh my God, this thing happened with my kids in the car. And he wrote back. And I just thought that was so cool. And then we started emailing each other and, and um, we, we, met, we, met, we met in person a couple of times. And, and then I was like, I want to come out with you. I want to go do something. I want to be, let's be a rebel, you know? Gonna, let's just change the fucking world, you know? And just dodge cops. And he's like, all right, well, he was doing this, like his projection project, which it's in the book. Um, and if you saw it, it's amazing. It only existed for a second. But we would find these street corners and we had this battery, a generator, and a projector. And we would project, you know, just huge, on huge walls and sides of building some of his, his art pieces. And I was like, yeah, I think I wore like, Black, you know, I was like, this is gonna fuck you. yeah, fuck you, man, you know, and uh, and um, and uh, that wasn't the case at all. Going around the city with Morley is just like reading his artwork. Everyone's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just putting some stuff up, and I was like, no, we're gonna run. We should lie to people. He's like, he's like, no, I don't want to lie. Just tell them what we're doing. You know, they'll they'll love it, and everyone loved it. Everyone loved it, and you saw their face, and you saw their face change, and um, it was amazing. I felt that personally every time I would go past one of his pieces of art, but to see that in action was, was really extraordinary. Um, and I think one of the things I love most about his art is that it can do that. It can warn people, and I think, you know, like LA is a tough place. <laughs> it is a, for, and this is, maybe I'm saying a lot about myself, but it is a tough, lonely place. There's a lot of togetherness, but it's a pretty lonely place. And, um, and I think his work, just being throughout the city, it's, it's, it's a friend. It's someone there to shake your hand and give you a hug and tell you it's okay. Whether you know you need it or, or not, it's, it's there. And, and he writes something in his book. He moved from the Midwest uh, to Los Angeles, and he's talking about the idea of feeling lost. And he said, do people do this in Los Angeles? 
Can he feel stifled in a city with this much magnitude and hype? Do they yearn for something better? A place where better bands tour and they don't have to drive an hour to see an art house flick in a theater. Do people living in Los Angeles feel like the only thing holding them back from the future they're surely destined for is being stuck in a city full of people who can't understand? The feeling that if someone just gave you a chance, you'd change the world. Yes, that is exactly what it feels like in Los Angeles. And I would read this, I felt like, oh my God, I totally get it. And then I felt so bad for the kid who moved to LA to escape those feelings. Because they're here and they're just, they're, they're, they're bigger. And I feel like there's times where I feel like I'm totally consumed with, with, uh, with my heartbreaks and my, my dashed dreams and, 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 and your almosts and your, and your failures and your misses. And Morley is there on every street corner right there with you telling you to forget how much it hurts and try again. Don't worry so much. Uh, you're so much stronger than you think. You're exactly where you need to be. It will get better. They're almost always wrong. Live well. Love easy. Every time I go by one of these things, I'm like, that's exactly what I need right now. Uh, and my favorite is, one of my favorites is, you don't need me, but here I am anyway. And I think that's true for whoever you need in your life, but it's certainly true for, for, for Morley's works. Because I think as we go through the city and go through our lives and our struggles, I feel like his work is a, is a, is a benediction, telling you that it's okay uh, if you're vain or selfish or lonely or jealous or if you've been rejected or if you felt self-pity or, or if you look back with regret or, or, or look forward with fear, um, it's okay because he's done it too and he's right there with you. Um, I feel like uh, we're all just kind of, you know, in, our, in some way, kind of wounded people who are just doing what we can to kind of stay positive and keep a smile on our face. Uh, until the world kicks us in the balls again. <laughs> and, and I think in, in some way, we're all kind of looking to be healed, um, looking for, or for someone or something to, to heal us. Uh, and um, I, I don't think Morley with his work uh, professes to do that. He doesn't know how to fix people. He doesn't know the answer. But at the very least, um, he tells you that it's okay to feel that way. And that he's been there too. And that we'll get through this together. And um, in a, in a crowded, lonely town, uh, I always feel like I have a friend when I see Morley's work on the street. Um, it means a lot to me, and, and, and you mean a lot to me, and I'm very happy Thanks, to be dude. here. And, and so <laughs> that's what Morley's work means to me. <laughs> and maybe I've told you too much. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, uh, but it's okay, says Morley. Um, and so I thought maybe uh, we, I could ask you a couple questions yeah, in a very impromptu salon style way. Yeah. Um, is there, should we sit down? Can we, can we sit? Um, sure. I actually had requested one of those long Chuck Woolery mics. That we could just, uh, a, Swiss, a skinny one. Yeah, yeah, the skinny yeah, one. Like Price is Right, too. That's the, I'm much com more comfortable we with We requested every mic. kind of mic but yeah, these. It's true. Yeah, we, uh, every kind. <laughs> Um, well, I'll just ask you all the okay. chairs. So, um, you know, I, obviously your work is incredibly personal, and um, I thought it very interesting and 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 apropos uh, that Frank Warren um, wrote uh, the foreword uh, to your book. Um, 
you know, he, uh, Frank Warren, if you guys don't know, he did, but he's like the post-secret guy. Um, and um, he published several volumes of books where people would write in postcards and just... Uh, with secrets on them. Yeah, with, yeah. with secrets and confess uh, the most moving or horrible things uh, you can imagine. But there was, he really encouraged uh, everyone in a very kind of safe environment in an anonymous way to kind of peel back uh, a layer and, and reveal something. And... Um, and I just feel like that is what you do in, in your work. You, you reveal all this about yourself. And, and um, you know, you wrote that the work is as much about us as it is about you. Sure. And, um, I mean, was it hard to, is it hard to express, it, it, does this help? Or is it, is it always kind of hard? Are you always kind of like ripping off Band-Aids every time, time you, well, you do a piece? When I started it, uh, you know, I had started actually in very sort of even more anonymously than 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 what it is today. I had started when I was in college. I started um, silk screening my slogans on stickers and putting them up around the subway. I went to school in New York, and you weren't in them at this point. No, it was yeah. just the just the words, and uh, it was there was I there was no way of getting any kind of response at all. So I could just completely assume the best that everything that every person that walked by was like that guy's all right, and everything he must stand for is good. You know. Um, thank you. When I started doing this, though, uh, the stuff with when I moved out here, basically, I started getting it started getting a lot bigger, and um, and I started doing, put including a drawing of myself to sort of give it, uh, make it less of a disembodied sense of words and more of like this is a friend, this is a person that's that you, you know that you can connect with on a human level. Um, and at the time, I really had not considered like I'm putting a drawing of myself on public streets with good-natured, you know, uh, messages on them, how long will it take before someone draws a dick on me? You know, like, how long will it take before someone says, you know, asshole or whatever? And uh, it depends on, uh, you know, some are obviously, I can feel a little bit more like, well, if they're, you know, some are a little bit less personal than others. The really personal ones uh, can be can be uh, vulnerable, yeah. So I try my best to sort of like put those in places that are far off and never even think about them ever again, you know. Um, but what's great though is that when I started putting it up and I started a website and and, and people could write to me, is that. Uh, even the more confessional I got with these things, the more people would write in and say that it made a difference to them. And so that to me was all of the encouragement that I needed. I didn't need, you know, it didn't matter as much that someone might say I was a dork for putting it up. If there was some person that said this affected me in a positive way, then I was like, okay, I, I'll take the hit then. You know, I'll take whatever sort of critiques come along with it. Um, so does so. that drive, does the interaction with people, you know, if they email you or, 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 or um, you know, through through I guess through your website, um, d does that drive a lot of the a lot of the work? Absolutely. I mean, it it you know when I first started, there was I was really just going off of um, my own struggles, my family's and friends' struggles, and and things that uh, that I sort of the things I thought people needed to hear, you know, because I needed to hear them, or because people I knew needed to hear them. Um, but as I sort of continued on, I started, you know, finding people that I didn't know, and they said this meant something to them. Sometimes slightly, you know, in, they filled in more blanks than I expected them to. Like, you know, they would say, this specific one meant a lot to me, and for this, this, and this reason, I'm like, wow, that was, I mean, I thought it was, you know, kind of broad, but I guess this person thought it was incredibly specific to them, and that's that was, you know, those kind of things are awesome, you know. And I think the way that 
people open up to you, and I think something that really distinguishes you, distinguishes you from so many other street artists who, you know, are anonymous or, or hide or or. Um, but the fact that you put yourself on on your on this work, um, I think it makes it feel so much more. For me, at least, it makes it feel so much more personal um, that someone's kind of putting an arm around you. Right. Um, and. Uh, you know, talk about. Can you talk about this, the decision? I know you write about it a little bit, but can you yeah. talk about the decision to put yourself on there? And also, I would imagine how to represent yourself. You know, right. was it, it? You know, it's, they're very real uh, representations, and um, you know, it's not a caricature. It's not. You don't try to obscure yourself. It's right. a very honest. Here I am. You know, very kind of plain expression that people could kind of write anything they want on right. onto that. Face and those poses. I mean, I, I definitely don't draw the huge uh, throbbing biceps. No, and you are really modest in the I, way you I don't depict want to yourself. People, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah. I, well, to me, the thing was that <laughs> I kind of saw, looked at sort of this, the street art scene and said, you know what, I feel like is kind of missing from this is the relationship that people have with bands, with music they like. I remember I saw the uh, John Lennon documentary, Imagine. And at one point, um, a sort of vagrant guy is wandering through their garden. He comes on his property. Yeah, he yeah, goes yeah, on his yeah. property, and, he's, and he, they come out and sort of say, hey, hey, man, what's up, you know? And, uh, and he said, this guy is like, you know, you wrote those songs for me. You, like, pulled them out of my head, and you wrote them for me. And he's like, well, I mean, they're, I wrote them. I pulled them out of my own head. They're, my, they're for me, but if you relate to them, that's awesome, you know? And I thought, you know, that's something that you really... That's a kind of relationship that is, is really kind of, I think, specific to musicians because when you, you know, music, when you hear it and when you have a person, you can kind of attach a sense of, of someone speaking to you rather than just words and stuff like that. I felt like, you know, that creates a relationship that's so much more intimate. And so that's why I thought, you know, you've got all these great street artists that are all so great, but none of them necessarily have that relationship because there's, they, they don't, they can't or they won't or whatever, um, include sort of themselves into the piece so that you sort of have that connection. And that's what I kind of was, was hoping to achieve was vagrants wandering onto my property and saying I stole something out of their minds. <laughs> um, how, how long were you doing work before uh, you introduced yourself into the, into the pieces? Super on and off. Um, when I was in college, I did it um, for main, mostly like the last um, two years of uh, of college. Um, a little bit when you know when I sort of got there, you know, it was it would be again very small time stickers, things like that. Um, and then uh, and then kind of you know it was really more of a hobby. And then when I came out here, it it was still sort of a hobby at first. Um, but it started getting bigger and bigger, and uh, and I just got more and more sucked into it because really, you know, we spend as artists, and I'm sure everybody here, or at least most everybody here, can relate to the fact that we spend so much of our time preparing for the day that someone will give us a chance to say something and, and create something. You know that that uh, almost all, you know, like even if you're a painter, for example, you can paint, and then you're like, somebody give me permission to show my work in a gallery. You know, somebody give me permission to to to, to put myself my stuff in front of somebody who could see it. Uh, and to me, I was like, this is a chance to actually create and do stuff without any need for permission, without any need to like, you know, uh, you know, like I say in the book, see if I'm qualified for it. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of why I got sort of more and more and more kind of into it. And now it kind of just consumed me, I guess. Um, could you talk about another uh, form of interaction? You know, you're talking about that's why you put yourself in there so you can interact with the with with your the, the people who see your work. 
Um, you know, you have, uh, you know, at certain times um, with the, uh, the please take and the free and the morally men and the, um, the human being awards mm -hmm. uh, invited uh, people to physically interact with the work as well. Is that an important component to not just feel it emotionally but to, but to physically interact with Absolutely, because when I started, you know, the goal was always like get as much of the work in front of the most amount of people as possible. So it would be like, you know, if you can get a huge, you know, billboard spot or whatever, like that's great and thousands of people could potentially walk by it. And as I continued doing that, I sort of realized, but there's, there is real power in one person seeing something that only they would find, you know? And so that's why, for me, I, I decided to start doing things that would, uh, that, that could be interactive on a very specific so and like a, individual. Almost a private moment exactly, with you yeah. and, 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 and someone. Yeah, and ironically, one of the things that I did was I put bookmarks in uh, books at this bookstore uh, <laughs> around Christmas time. I didn't ask them. Uh, I just went around and put bookmarks and gift cards for to, to buy books here, just in any random book. Filmed it with my friend, and uh, and then we put it online. And anybody who came in here, if they sort of bought, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Life of Pi or something like that, they would you know find it at some point, and hopefully it would you know be special specifically for them. And you did that with greeting cards as well. I did that. Yeah, I went to grocery stores and put different greeting cards. Uh, with that one, I had to be very careful because I didn't want someone getting the greeting card and leaving the store and having some security guard be like, hey, you didn't pay for that greeting card. <laughs> so I had to like put on the back, like, this card is free, you know. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you, and this uh, relates a little bit to the title of the book that I wanted to I'll ask you about, but um, uh, the thing I love about your uh, work is that it really talks about you know, tomorrow. You know, what, what can we do tomorrow, or the next moment, or next month, or what, what can we do next to, to be better, to get better, to, to have deeper compassion, to love more, to forgive, to forgive more easily. Um, and, and I like that we're all kind of, to you, it seems like works in progress. We can all, we're, we're not there yet, <laughs> you know? And there was something, something to that, I think, thematically, but I also love that in so many of your pieces, you know, the works are still in progress. The works right. themselves are still works in progress. Was that something that you, you know, you're, you're finishing up a letter or right. you're, you're touching something up? Um, is, is that something that you try to connect uh, with, this, with kind of the theme of the work? Yeah, I think that because there's the, na the nature of a lot of these things being sort of like desperate pleas in mm -hmm. a way um, to oneself, but also that people could relate to it because it's just this sense of like this person that is so desperate to to speak and put out whatever message they're trying to connect with people that they're like writing it on the wall uh, and, and it's like this kind of, you know, not perfectly written uh, type of thing and they're just kind of filling in the last letter or just, you know, whatever. To me, I thought it, it, it furthered the idea that like this is like the instant that the person is walking by is the instant that this piece was just like the last letter was sort of being filled in or something there's like that. There's an immediacy to it. Exactly. So mm -hmm. that someone would walk by it and it wouldn't feel like something that had like a monument that had existed for years and years, like a beautiful statue or it something. It becomes less it like presentational. Exactly. And more like... This is just for you at the second. I'm so glad exactly. you came by. And yeah. the truth is, it's probably going to be gone in a day or two anyway, <laughs> right. so it makes sense even more, you know? Um, uh, I, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, with, with so many... Um, you, you, there was, there was, you had a piece um, uh, that said, uh, would you feel better about this if it was 
If a company paid, if a company yeah. paid for it, and and I think that's a really interesting comment on obviously you know street art and and how it's perceived by you know people who love it or people who might be bothered by it. And I wanted to ask you, you know, as street art is moving kind of more and more into galleries and and uh, and becoming kind of more commodified, what's the place for street art? Like, ultimately, as you were saying, like, and all street artists, or any artist, wants to reach the biggest audience. I mean, any artist wants to do that. And so is there is there a place for, for, for what you do now to, 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 to be plastered up, to exist for a moment, to come down immediately? I mean, what's, what's the, ideally for you, what's the place for, for your work? Um, well, I think on the street, in a book, in a gallery, yeah. or do, you, do you just want to speak to as many people as you can? I, I mean, yes, I think that the, to me, the book, the reason why I, this more than anything I've really done up to now is, is important to me is because uh, the, the work outside of the context really doesn't, to me anyway, maybe to, and, and, to, and to people who it means something to, it, can, it still can mean something to them. But for me, I feel like when it's removed from the street, it loses something magical and special about it, you know? Then uh, it feels like it's, you know, at that point I feel like it, it should be better almost, you know? Like, I, the, I, the statement of like, I promise you you're not just a waitress or something, seeing that in a gallery means something different than seeing it on the street. If you've had a, you know, a tough day, you just come off your shift or whatever and you're wondering like, why did I come out here? Did I come out here to, you know, be a musician or an actress or did I come out here to be a waitress? And I, so on and so forth. By the way, no disrespect to waitresses. Um, I had that issue come up recently and was sort of startled that someone was thought I was like pointing aim at that. But uh, no, it, that statement in a gallery means something different. And so for me, what, I, what was special about the book was that it returned the context to the pieces and it said, so people were seeing it on the street as it was sort of meant to be, the, the place that, you know, I say at the end of the book, it's the difference between street art and gallery work is like the difference between seeing a band play at a concert venue and seeing a busker on the street playing a guitar. And, you know, both are beautiful, both can be wonderful, but one feels intimate and feels personal and one can feel more general and, and for you know an audience as opposed to a unique person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me, I feel like uh, the important thing is always just man like maintaining that sense of intimacy. And I, I, I haven't really discovered an alternative to what I do now in terms of like something that would, that, that you know, like if someone said, hey, we want to give you 10 billboards to put up all over the city, I'd be like, great. But there would be part of me that would feel like, yeah, but if a person can't walk up and touch it, if a person can't feel that connection, the feel that it was one guy that came out, pasted this up, and got the hell out of there before the cops came, you know, it's, it just, I don't know if it would necessarily have the same feeling behind it. So the, so the thought behind the book is the, con the context right. is so important for these pieces that, that the book is to see them in their state, as you, as you intended them to exactly. be. Exactly, yeah. It feels, it, to me, I feel like it makes it more of a, a documentary right. as opposed to, you know, sort of a narrative, you know, finely tuned, sort of structured thing. And, I mean, even down to the sort of texture of the cover, I wanted it to, you know, in the paper, I wanted it to feel more textile and more sort of like natural and less glossy and less kind of refined, you know? Um, I, I want to ask you one more, one more thing yeah. and then uh, we can, you guys can get your book signed. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there, there, you really see so much of, you know, yourself as you look into your pieces. And um, I, I wanted to ask you to read just from one passage, it really resonated uh, with me, where um, you, uh, you had people literally see themselves in your work right. and you put a, a mirror yeah. in, into, your, into your work. And I wanted you to just yeah, read sure. that for a second. It's that one, the small oh, one. Oh, cool. 
So this piece, uh, well, I guess it basically is explained in the, in the story. It's called Mirror, Mirror. <coughs> um, and I'll hold it up because I didn't bring that slide. But the uh, in the image, I'm... Uh, in the image, I'm... Whoa. Uh-oh. Dirty photos. Um, in the image... <laughs> in the image, I'm... Uh, it's, it's a drawing of Morley uh, holding up a mirror. Uh, with the words, it will get better on it. Um, and the idea, as you'll see, was to sort of bring people into the piece. So the goal with this piece was to try and include the viewer as much as possible, to personalize it somehow and bring everyone who passed it into the message. I went to a glass cutting shop and had a pair of mirrors made to the size I wanted, then cut a stencil of the words, spray painted them on, created the drawing of me holding it up, blew it up to the right scale, pasted it up, and used a caulking gun to make the mirror stick to the wall. I was happy with the result and had planned to do the second one. However, the following morning I went to my car and found that it had been broken into for the second time in a month. My stereo had been stolen and my dashboard ripped out. I had hidden the stereo face so the whole car was ransacked. The thief even took the spare change I had in my cup holder. And then I saw it, sitting on the passenger seat where the cracked remains of the other mirror. I couldn't decide if it was just intentional or collateral damage from a hasty robbery. Looking back now and imagining the scenario, it seems almost comically tragic. Someone desperate enough to break into my junked out 97 Honda Civic and steal a $50 stereo and a handful of loose change, only to be faced with a mirror saying, it will get better. <laughs> Nothing stings like good-natured encouragement when you're in the midst of a really low moment. Looking at your own reflection as you rob some stranger, seeing the words of hope sprayed paint across it. If it was me, I might have smashed it too. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.